Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on the 18th of August for the listening week that begins the 19th, and your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First article comes from the Washington Post, was published on the 12th of August, written by Maham Javaid. How oral storytelling helped a blind man see the Montgomery brawl. A brawl on the Montgomery, Alabama riverfront last week led to four people being charged after video went viral showing white boaters attacking a black co-captain. That's a caption under the photo at the top of the album. Andy Slater sometimes misses crucial visual context around major news events because he is blind. So when the brawl on a Montgomery, Alabama dock last week became social media's dominant topic, Slater took to TikTok with a request that someone, quote, write and record some kind of image description, narration, some audio description of the fight. The response was instantaneous. Thousands of viewers shared his appeal, and hundreds responded, many of them making videos narrating the fight. The outpouring of help moved Slater to both laughter and tears. People showed up for me and for the rest of the blind community, the 48-year-old told the Washington Post. I cried as I watched them. The fight that sparked Slater's request began when a black co-captain of the Harriet II riverboat asked a group of white boaters to move their pontoon boat on a dock at Riverfront Park in Montgomery. The white men attacked him, sparking a massive brawl as onlookers stepped in to help the co-captain. It resulted in assault charges for four of the white boaters and one black man. Video of the dock fight recorded from various angles by onlookers quickly went viral, becoming fodder for memes. The black co-captain tossing his baseball hat into the air as white men began pushing him. A 16-year-old black boy swimming across the water to the dock to the rescue of a fellow colleague. And later, a black person using a folding chair to hit more than one white person. But Slater initially couldn't experience any of this, he said. He could gather that there was a whole cast of characters involved in the fight, and he wanted to know more, he said, adding that he also wanted this to be a moment to promote access and inclusion for blind people in the conversation. Slater said, Seeing people don't realize that a piece of visual information that seems insignificant to them can really help us picture things. Slater is a media artist and sound designer who works for an immersive design company. He went on, People don't realize the value of audio descriptive tracks that sound natural. He said he was moved by how excited people with the ability to see were to make sure that blind people had a seat on the dock. These people didn't know me, he said, 
but that didn't hold them back from making all kinds of videos. Some were very neutral and polite. Some were absurd and creative, but all of them were so wonderful. Slater said one that stood out to him came from Wilden Pierreville, a 25-year-old content creator based in New York City. Pierreville's interpretation of the Montgomery brawl is from the perspective of the co-captain's hat. With gentle music in the background, Pierreville uses a soothing tone to describe the events the way a personified hat would have seen them. The hat, in Pierreville's nar narration, pardon me, doesn't claim to know everything. It appears uncomfortable with the folding chair being used to hit a woman, but it repeats several times that there are a few things, quote, that were absolutely and undeniably true. One was that the little boat didn't belong in the big boat place, Pierreville voices the hat describing the white men attacking the co-captain and about 25 black people coming to his rescue. It describes the police arriving and, quote, watching it happen and doing nothing to stop it until the folding chair was brought into the fight. It notes how crowds on the dock and the big boat cheered, clapped, and snapped pictures. The narration is sprinkled with pop culture references and earnest jokes about the hat just wanting to do its job, blocking the sun out of my guy's eyes. Pierreville told the Post that Slater's request inspired him to try a kind of oral storytelling that transcended sensory experiences in the style of a folk tale. He said, while writing this, I couldn't stop thinking about American mythology and black American mythology pardon me, mythological characters, some of whom are real, larger-than-life people who existed, like Harriet Tubman, and others who are mostly made up, like John Henry. Pierreville said he tried to imagine a future where the Montgomery Brawl's participants, as well as objects like the folding chair and the hat, had their stories told as folk heroes. He said he was thrilled when Slater commented on his video, saying he enjoyed it, Slater said he often feels like he's missing out on context around the news because he is blind. He cited the January 6, 2021 riots as one such moment. When videos from the Capitol were widely circulating online, Slater said he and his wife, oh, pardon me, Slater said he asked his wife and his son for context. What does Lindsey Graham's face look like right now? Which room have they entered? What kind of hat did you say he was wearing? Slater said he wishes that more people whose job involves disseminating the news would create nuanced audio descriptions of events that are of national importance. He said he hoped the response to his request about the Montgomery brawl will help spark more opportunities for all people to gain a deeper understanding of critical events. It was a moment where people were happy and TikTok was filled with joy, he said. I didn't want this moment to get away from my community. And just a little more following up on that particular story from the Washington Post. This one was posted on August 10th, written by Timothy Bella. Men charged in Montgomery Brawl had been trouble for a riverboat, Captain says. The three white men charged with assault Tuesday after they attacked a black riverboat co-captain in Montgomery, Alabama, 
and ignited a brawl, largely along racial lines, had previously caused problems for the Harriet too, the vessel's captain said, and were repeatedly asked to move their pontoon boat so the river boat could dock. Harriet too, Captain Jim Cottrell, told media outlets he believed the attack on co-captain Damien Pickett over the weekend was, quote, racially motivated. Richard Roberts, 48, Alan Todd, 23, and Zachary Shipman, 25, were charged with third-degree misdemeanor assault in the attack on Pickett at a dock in Riverfront Park. Montgomery Police Chief Darrell J. Albert said at a news conference, all three turned themselves in, Montgomery Police Major Saba Coleman told the Washington Post she added that Roberts also has a warrant pending for striking a 16-year-old white boy and that Reggie Gray, a 42-year-old black man who was seen on video hitting people with a folding chair during the brawl, has not turned himself in after police called on him to do so. Authorities said that they had consulted with the FBI and would not be able to charge the white men with a hate crime or with inciting a riot. But Kittrell, who told WACV in Montgomery that riverboat staff previously had trouble with the boaters from Selma, Alabama, emphasized that he believed the assault on Pickett was due to racism. The white guys that attacked my deckhand, and he was a senior deckhand first mate, I can't think of any other reason they attacked him other than it being racially motivated. Cottrell, who is white, told the Daily Beast on Tuesday. He went on, All he did was move their boat up three feet. It makes no sense to have six people try to beat the snot out of you just because you moved their boat up a few feet. In my opinion, the attack on Damien was racially motivated. He added to Radio News show News and Views with Joy Clark, Joey Clark, pardon me, that the brawl after the initial assault of Pickett was not a black-and-white thing. Neither Pickett nor Cottrell, 62, immediately responded to requests for comment Wednesday morning. Albert announced the charges against Roberts, Todd, and Shipman three days after videos went viral of the brawl, which was decried by Montgomery Mayor as an unfortunate incident which should have never occurred. This is not indicative of who we are, said Reed, Montgomery's first black mayor, on Wednesday, Reed criticized Todd and Shipman after they, quote, did not honor their agreement to surrender to authorities and said that police will do what it takes to bring them to justice. Videos taken by onlookers and spread around the Internet showed the black co-captain Pickett arguing with one of the pontoon boaters on Saturday as a second white man charges at Pickett and hits him in the face. Pickett then tosses his cap into the air before the two hit each other. Almost immediately, Pickett is swarmed by several white men on the dock who throw punches while the black man on, pardon me, while the black man was on the ground, according to the videos that were posted. White and black people on the dock and shore appear to jump in to try to help Pickett, and someone appears to jump off the riverboat and swim to the dock to help the co-captain. As the initial tussle calmed down, Videos appeared to show a group of black men confronting the white boaters. That fighting lasted more than a minute, with one of the black men, allegedly gray, being recorded hitting a white woman in the head with a folding chair and then being surrounded by police. One person seemed to get punched off the dock into the water. 
Police detained 13 people for questioning and then released them, said Albert. The police chief said that no stone was unturned in deciding ultimately to not charge Roberts, Todd, and Shipman with more serious charges. Pardon me, with more serious charges. He told reporters, We examined this over a period of time, not only that night, but since that night. At this time, based on the way the statutes read the laws are crafted, we were unable to present any inciting a riot or racially biased charges. Cottrell has captained the Harriet, too, for about 13 years, steering the riverboat since it was originally known as Savannah River Queen of Savannah, Georgia. He told the Daily Beast he's known Pickett for about 10 years during their time together on the Harriet, too, which is a 19th century riverboat offering dinner, dancing, and live entertainment as part of Montgomery's popular riverfront park. The riverboat captain said this week that the three white men were part of a group of pontoon boaters that Selma, pardon me, from Selma, that he's had issues with in recent years. We've had trouble with them in the past, but just like jokey things, he said. He pointed to an instance a couple of years ago when one of the riverboat's golf carts went missing after returning from a cruise. Cottrell said the group had taken it and left it in an odd place, the lobby of a Hampton Inn. We looked at the Hampton Inn video, found out who did it, and we had them come down. We were going to press charges then, but the police talked us out of it. But what unfolded Saturday was different, he said. When Cottrell noticed the pontoon boat was partially blocking the area where the riverboat docks, he asked the pontoon boat's passengers over the PA system to move the boat about five times, he recalled. After he threatened to call the police on the boaters, they started shooting birds at us, which led him to call law enforcement. I was nice as a peach when I talked to them at first, he said. Please help me out here, fellas. Move the boat up a little bit. Not long after Pickett attempted to push the pontoon boat forward a few feet, Cottrell saw his colleague get attacked by the men from Selma. We're 40 yards or 30 yards away from the dock watching all of this. There's nothing we can do, he told the radio station. About that time, another guy comes running up, and within a minute or so, it was an all-out brawl. And then I saw some more guys coming, and I said, Oh, thank God, they're going to break it up. But instead of breaking it up, they jumped on him, too. So, one at a time, or pardon me, at one time, it was like six, seven guys on my deckhand that was trying to move the boat. While Cottrell maintained that the attack on Pickett was racially motivated, he emphasized that the rest of the brawl, which appeared to be along racial lines, was not the same as the initial encounter. He said he was thankful for the Harriet II staff for standing up and coming to Pickett's aid during the attack. It was just, pardon me, it was just shipmates trying to help a shipmate. They could have been little green men for all they cared, he told the Daily Beast. When they attacked Damien, my crew was going to jump out and do the best they could to help him out. It was my crew against the people who attacked their shipmate. That's all it was. Moving next to an article from Blava TV. It was posted on August 4th and written by Christopher Rhodes. The historic Gullah Geechee community is fighting to retain its land and culture in South Carolina. The distinct Gullah Geechee people located near the coast of South Carolina have survived slavery, 
the Civil War, and Jim Crow. But in recent decades, the historic black community has been threatened by gentrifiers and commercial developers who have taken their land. In a struggle that most Americans have not noticed, the Gullah Geechee continue to fight the political and legal battles needed to preserve as many of their homes and as much of their culture as they can. A long enduring black community threatened by gentrification. The descendants of people from Central and West Africa were brought to the southern United States as slaves. The Gullah Geechee people have been able to retain elements of their home cultures. This includes the Gullah dialect, a mix of English and several West African languages, as well as distinctive foods and other expressions of culture. The community lives along the Atlantic coast and on several coastal islands in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. The total Gullah Geechee population has been estimated at about one million. But over time, much of the land previously held by the community has been taken over by mainly white developers who have transformed it into resorts and golf courses. In recent years, what's left of the Gullah Geechee lands and culture have been threatened by efforts to displace the remaining members of the culture and to remove the protections that are in place to protect their land. Protecting St. Helena Island Recently, the fight to preserve Gullah Geechee territory has been centered on St. Helena Island. The Beaufort County, South Carolina community currently enjoys protection from the Cultural Protection Overlay, CPO, a 1990s law meant to protect the Gullah Geechee community by limiting the ability of commercial developers to encroach. But an ambitious investor has been attempting to change the law in order to develop a new golf course and a new gated community, potentially gentrifying thousands of acres of land in the process. Hundreds of members of the Gullah Geechee community have been active in fighting against this change holding public hearings and convincing the Beaufort, pardon me, I'm not completely sure of the regional pronunciation of Beaufort or Beaufort County Council to reject the proposed changes. However, with developers filing legal appeals against this decision, the threat to the community remains. Fighting to maintain Gullah Geechee land on Hilton Head Island. The fight to preserve the CPO in St. Helena represents an effort to halt a decades-long process by which much of the Gullah Geechee land has been repurposed over decades, most famously Hilton Head, the South Carolina island where hundreds of Gullah Geechee people had lived since the Civil War, was converted into a popular resort and golf destination. Today, Gullah Geechee neighborhoods remain scattered throughout the island, and even this territory is under threat. In one current notable case, developers are fighting to take the land of a 93-year-old Josephine Wright, who has refused to sell the property that has been in her family since the Civil War. Amid harassment and lawsuits, Wright's family has raised over $300,000 to fight to protect her property. Kyrie Irving and Snoop Dogg are among the people who have donated to her campaign. Wright and other members of the Gullah Geechee community can use all the help they can get, celebrity and otherwise, as developers remain determined to control as much of these lands as possible. 
Losing this fight would threaten the existence of one of the most unique and inspirational communities in the United States. But the Gullah Geechee community, having endured slavery and racism for centuries, remains determined to preserve itself from the challenge of gentrification as well. Next article comes from The Conversation. It was posted August 15th. Written by Alexander N. Taylor, Ph.D. candidate in economics and George, oh, at George Mason University. When Confederate glorifying monuments went up in the South, voting in black areas went down. Confederate monuments burst into public consciousness in 2015 when a shooting at an historically black church in Charleston, South Carolina, instigated the first broad calls for their removal. The shooter intended to start a race war and had posed with Confederate imagery in photos posted online. Monument removal efforts grew in 2017 after a counter-protester was killed at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where white supremacist groups defended the preservation of Confederate monuments. Removal movements saw widespread success in 2020, following George Floyd's death at the hands of police. These events linked Confederate monuments to modern racist beliefs and acts. But whether monuments carry inherent racism or are merely misinterpreted requires further exploration. Research by economist Jakova A. Williams has shown that black Americans who live in areas that have a relatively higher number of streets named after prominent Confederate generals are, quote, less likely to be employed, are more likely to be employed in low-status occupations, and have lower wages compared to whites. I studied economic and political history and have researched the effects of Confederate monuments in the post-Civil War South. I found that these symbols helped solidify the Jim Crow era, which established segregation across the South and lasted from the 1880s until the 1960s. These symbols were accompanied by increases in the vote share of the Democratic Party, the racist party at the time that had supported slavery, and after the Civil War supported segregation for another century. The building of these monuments was also accompanied by reductions in voter turnout. Further research I conducted shows that these political effects disproportionately occurred in areas with a larger share of black residents. In other words, as these monuments were erected, the vote increased for members of the then-racist Democratic Party, and people turned out to vote in lower numbers in predominantly black areas. These findings demonstrate that a connection existed between racism and these monuments from their inception and provide context for modern monument debates. Monumental history. The South saw almost no monument dedications during the Civil War, which lasted from 1861 to 1865. Monuments first appeared during the Reconstruction era, 1865 to 1877, when southern states were occupied by the North and integrated back into the Union. Reconstruction-era monuments in general did not glorify the Confederacy. These monuments largely honored the dead and were 
placed in cemeteries and spaces distant from daily life, they compartmentalized the trauma of the war, commemorating lives but not placing the Confederacy at the center of Southern identity. As Reconstruction neared its end in 1875, a Stonewall Jackson monument erected in Richmond, Virginia, foreshadowed the different monuments to come. The monument's dedication drew 50,000 spectators and included a military-style parade. The potential presence of a local all-black militia proved to be controversial. To avoid accusations of race-mixing, organizers planned to place the militia and any other black participants in the back of the parade. The militia did not attend, likely in anticipation of that controversy, and the only black Southerners present in the parade were formerly enslaved people who had served in the Confederacy's Stonewall Brigade. This stark picture of Southern race relations served as a preview of political developments to come. This trend continued after Reconstruction, which ended with the Compromise of 1877. This compromise settled the disputed 1876 presidential election, giving Republicans the presidency and Democrats, then a pro-segregation party, full political control of the South. Democrats subsequently established what would become known as Jim Crow laws across the South, an array of restrictive and discriminatory laws that disenfranchised black Southerners and made them second-class citizens, Monuments played a crucial, pardon me, a cultural role in establishing the Jim Crow South. Unlike Reconstruction monuments, post-Reconstruction post monuments were erected in prominent public spaces, and their focus shifted toward the portrayal and glorification of famous Confederates. Monument dedication ceremonies were particularly popular around the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War, peaking in 1911. Additional Confederate monuments have been dedicated since that period, but those numbers pale in comparison to the monument-building spree of 1878 to 1912. Monumental Effects my research investigates the political effects of Confederate monuments in the Reconstruction and early post-Reconstruction, 1877-1912, eras, namely their effects on Democratic Party vote share and voter turnout. I expected monuments' potential effects to be directly related to their centrality to everyday life and glorification of the Confederacy. This is the primary difference between soldier memorializing Reconstruction and Confederate glorifying post-Reconstruction monuments. I expected to find little political effect from soldier memorializing Reconstruction monuments, but some pro-Jim Crow effects from Confederate glorifying post-Reconstruction monuments. As monuments moved from cemeteries into central public spaces such as parks and squares, I expected them to affect voters' decisions, and this is precisely what I found. During Reconstruction, counties that dedicated Confederate monuments saw no change in voter turnout or Democratic Party vote share in biennial congressional elections. These symbols were soldier memorializing 
and physically separated from public life and did not influence voter decision-making. However, when monuments began to glorify the Confederacy and shifted into public life, political effects emerged. Counties that dedicated monuments in the early post-Reconstruction period saw, on average, a 5.5 percentage point increase in Democratic Party vote share and a 2.2 percentage point decrease in voter turnout compared with other counties. As monuments changed, so did their effect on the public. Glorifying public monuments communicated to the public that the Confederacy was worth preserving, thus strengthening Democratic majorities and lowering participation in the political process. Larger Democratic majorities alongside voter, pardon me, alongside lower voter turnout already suggests black Southerners, who almost exclusively voted for Republicans at that time, were voting less in areas with monuments. I conducted further exploration and found that these political effects disproportionately occurred in counties with larger black populations. This suggests that black voters were more responsive to Confederate monuments, which suppressed their political activity by signaling they were not accepted by the local community. The effects of post-Reconstruction monuments suggest that they played a role in continued racism throughout the South into the early 20th century. Their controversy today demonstrates the values still conveyed by their presence in society. Recent research has demonstrated the long-run effects of the spread of Southern white culture and prejudices across the United States post-Civil War, connecting it to higher levels of modern-day Republican Party voting and conservative values. It is thus no wonder Confederate monuments, as prominent symbols of pro-Confederate Southern white culture, continue to be and are likely to remain cultural flashpoints. And on the subject of monuments, this one I archived from July. It comes from the New York Times. It was posted July 17th and written by Zachary Small. City approves design for Shirley Chisholm Monument in Prospect Park. It took officials more than four years to say yes to the towering lattice steel statue by Amanda Williams and Alolekan B. Jayefus. Jayefus. On Monday, city officials approved designs for a monument to Shirley Chisholm, who, in 1968, was elected the first black woman to serve in Congress, representing a district that encompassed her childhood neighborhood of Bedford-Stuyvesant. A national symbol of empowerment for women and people of color, Chisholm was also the first woman to seek the Democratic presidential nomination. The Public Design Commission, who, which has authority over the city's permanent art collection, unanimously approved the 32-foot-tall yellow and green sculpture of the Congresswoman, a slightly scaled-back version of the original design. It will rise near the southeast entrance of Prospect Park. The artists, Amanda Williams and Olalakan B. Jayafus, presented their initial concept more than four years ago, the Department of Cultural Affairs has called it the first permanent public artwork in Brooklyn dedicated to a woman in history. Chisholm died at age 80 in 2005. Her New York Times obituary recalled her as an outspoken 
steely educator-turned-politician who shattered racial and gender barriers. In 2019, the Chisholm Monument was proposed as the headliner of She Built NYC, an ambitious program created by the de Blasio administration, led by the former First Lady, Shirlane McRae. To diversify the city's sculptures with a commitment of up to $10 million over four years. At the time, there were only five public artworks in the city devoted to women. But the program never lived up to its promise. The Chisholm Monument, slated for completion by the end of 2020, was delayed by the pandemic, and two years later, the beginning of a new mayoral, mayoral administration under Eric Adams. Commitments to memorialize additional women, including Billie Holiday, Dr. Helen Rodriguez-Trias, Elizabeth Jennings Graham, Catherine Walker, and the transgender activists Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, have also stalled on the city's agenda without firm plans or attached designers. The administration is committed to working to tell a more complete story surrounding the trailblazing women who have shaped our city, and we are ready to get more of these projects back underway, said Laurie Kumbo, New York City's current Commissioner of Cultural Affairs. Over the last four years, Williams and Jeffus have scaled back their original proposal to satisfy city officials and comply with accessibility laws. The steel sculpture is now eight feet smaller. Fencing around its base and the sunken elements, like a ramp, have also been removed. In their presentation Monday to the Public Design Commission, the artist said the monument, which also includes images of plants from Barbados, where she spent ages five through nine, would symbolize how Chisholm disrupted the perception of who belongs in the country's democratic institutions and left the door open to future generations of women. Depending upon your vantage point and approach to the Ocean Avenue entrance of Prospect Park, you can see Miss Chisholm's silhouette inextricably intertwined with the iconic dome of the U.S. Capitol building, they said in a statement. This trailblazing woman was not diminutive, and this monument reflects how Chisholm's collaborative ideals were larger than herself. Some critics have objected to the Chisholm monument's placement outside of her original district further north in Brooklyn, but others have pointed out that she was a champion of the entire borough. In 1972, she announced her presidential bid for the Democratic ticket, becoming the first black woman to seek that nomination from either major political party. Senator George McGovern from South Dakota would ultimately win the nomination, but lose to President Richard Nixon in the election. Chisholm's campaign slogan when she ran for president was, Unbought and Unbossed. Before the hearing, some historians celebrated the city's approval of the monument while seeking more answers on how officials will continue to fund maintenance of the structure. After, across the city, pardon me, memorials are crumbling after decades of neglect, with conservation bills racking up millions of dollars. On the side of the park opposite of where Chisholm's statue will go, the Soldiers' and Sailors' Arch is currently wrapped in scaffolding and will undergo a $6 million facelift. They have to build these things to stand up to the ages, said Michael Bogart, an art historian specializing in the city's public works. But overall, Bogart was happy to see Chisholm honored. If there were people concerned about there not being any memorials to women, this is an attempt to compensate 
the silhouette of her hairdo will echo in the treetops of the park. Next article comes from Wednesday, August 9th edition of the Wall Street Journal. Tourists flock to New York City's Harlem Marriott to open a new hotel in the storied neighborhood as it stages a comeback. This is written by Kate King. Visitors are returning to Harlem, providing a much-needed boost to the famous neighborhood as it helps drive New York City's tourism recovery from the pandemic. Visits to Harlem over the past year are up more than 15% compared with the 12 months leading into the pandemic, according to cell phone data. People traveling to the neighborhood from more than five miles away are helping drive the increase in foot traffic, said Greg Katz, head of product innovation and marketing at RetailStat. It's great when you hear all the different languages on the streets of Harlem because it's such a major driver of coffee shops, retail, all the small businesses, said Marcus Samuelson, an award-winning chef and owner of the well-known Harlem restaurant Red Rooster. COVID-19 hit the neighborhood hard. City data shows residents there suffered higher infection and death rates than Manhattan overall. Now, New York City's tourism is recovering as the pandemic ebbs. More than 6 million people visited the city last year, and total visitation is projected to surpass 2019 levels by the end of 2024. Harlem is attracting visitors to its brownstone homes, music scene, and historic churches. In another positive sign, Marriott is poised to open a 211-room Renaissance-flagged hotel, which is believed to be the first full-service hotel built in Harlem in over a century said developer Jeff Lamb. The neighborhood's prominence in movies, television, and music, as well as its legacy as a hub for black history and culture, draws international tourists, business owners there, oh, pardon me, business owners there said, making Harlem a must-see for visitors as they return to New York City post-pandemic. At the same time, a recent flurry of art gallery openings is attracting locals, and restaurants and bars are benefiting from residents staying closer to home because of remote work, said Lloyd Williams, chief executive of the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce. Increased tourism is helping as the neighborhood, which, like other areas of the city, still has some vacant storefronts and struggling businesses, continues its economic recovery from the pandemic. Jermail Tarter, in town from Kingsport, Tennessee, snapped pictures outside the Apollo Theater on 125th Street one recent afternoon. Tarter said he grew up watching Showtime at the Apollo, a popular television variety show, and opted to visit the theater over the Statue of Liberty or Ellis Island during his trip to New York. I'm definitely familiar with the culture and wanted to be a part of it, he said. Carolyn Johnson, a walking tour operator, said her business, Welcome to Harlem, has rebounded strongly, with revenue up about 15% compared with pre-pandemic. New York City residents from other neighborhoods were the first to start booking tours in the fall of 2021, followed by foreigners after the U.S. relaxed international travel restrictions last summer. Restaurants and bars in Harlem also are on the upswing, 
with spending at these establishments 7% higher between April 22 and March 23 than during the 12-month period leading up to the pandemic. Prices for new apartments in Harlem have increased over the past decade, according to brokerage Brown-Harris-Stevens Development Marketing. With the average contract signing for more than $1.3 million this year, which is a 79% increase from 2013, still, quality of life issues exacerbated by the pandemic, including drug use, mental illness, and crime, remain serious concerns, said Sidaria Asbury-Chessfield, a longtime resident and co-founder of the advocacy group Greater Harlem Coalition. The group has pushed the city to provide more homeless and addiction services, as well as increased police patrols. Efforts, she said, have led to improvements. January of this year, we were afraid to go outside after dark, she said. Now, we feel a lot safer, but we still are not back to where we were before. A few doors down from the Apollo, workers were putting the finishing touches on the Renaissance New York Harlem Hotel. The hotel is expected to charge about $250 a night, said Jennifer Connell, global brand leader for Renaissance Hotels. The property was built in the footprint of the historic Victoria Theater, which opened as a vaudeville house in 1917 and later became a movie theater, but then sat vacant for decades. The hotel preserves elements of the Victoria, including the exterior facade, marquee, and outdoor ticket booths, as well as the lobby's staircase. The decor evokes giants from Harlan's storied music history, including Billie Holiday, Josephine Baker, Louis Armstrong, and Cab Calloway. The hotel, which was built as part of a larger public-private partnership development, is in a building that also includes retail, as well as two theaters and office space that will be operated by the Apollo, About half of the hotel's 70 employees are expected to be Harlem residents, said General Manager Lewiston Murray. Katrina Paris, a longtime Harlem resident and owner of the Lenox Avenue gift shop, Nilu, said the neighborhood has long needed more lodging, options to keep visitors in the neighborhood longer, and generate foot traffic for small businesses. You've got the happenings, but you don't have a place for people to sleep, she said. To have people come here, spend a short amount of time, and then go back to their hotels in Midtown, go back to the restaurants downtown, it's less than ideal. And back to TheRoot.com for another current article. This was published on the 18th, written by Candace McDuffie. Arkansas schools will still offer AP African American Studies despite states' objections. The schools also plan on taking care of the AP exam fee, since it's not covered by the state. Even though the Arkansas Department of Education discredited AP African American Studies earlier this month, schools in Jonesboro, Little Rock, and North Little Rock said that they will still offer the course. North Little Rock High School, Central High, Jacksonville High, and the academies at Johnsboro have all stated that the class will still be equivalent to other advanced placement classes. Charter schools North Little Rock Center for Excellence and East Dem High School will follow suit. Additionally, East Dem High School will award the school's very first Medal of Historical Pursuit and Valor to those who complete the African American Studies course, 
More than 700 schools across the country will offer the class for the upcoming school year. Students will be able to take an exam to possibly earn college credit for the first time in May 2024. Arkansas's latest stunt came the Friday before classes were supposed to start through, pardon me, though AP African American Studies is currently in its second pilot year. Earlier this year, the Arkansas Department of Education released a statement that teaching it may violate state law. The statement also implied that AP African American Studies is, quote, based on opinions or indoctrination. This is all happening under Education Secretary Jacob Oliva, who left Ron DeSantis' Florida Department of Education to work in Arkansas. Oliva is followed, pardon me, is following... Well, that sentence doesn't make sense. Pardon me. Oliva is following Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders' order and is going after indoctrination and critical race theory. Since the AP exam fee won't be covered by the state, the Little Rock School District has said it will make sure students in the class won't have to pay. And the Education Department from The Griot brings us this article from the 18th written by Blair L.M. Kelly. Prager use whitewashing of Frederick Douglass is exactly how you indoctrinate children with falsehoods about black history. This is an opinion piece. It says the conservative media company's videos have been approved for use in Florida classrooms, but the videos are nothing more than political propaganda. Frederick Douglass was brilliant. Rising from enslavement to become the foremost abolitionist and black statesman of his day, he was also not one to be played with. Born into bondage in 1818, Douglas had been leased by his slaveholder, pardon me, slaveholder to a man named Edward Covey. Known as a slave breaker, Covey was tasked by slaveholders to break the spirits of the enslaved people he controlled. Covey tried to break Douglas by tying him up and beating him mercilessly. After a coincidental, coincidental pardon me, visit with the local root doctor and conjurer, a skeptical Douglas was gifted with a root said to be so powerful it would prevent him from being beaten ever again. Perhaps imbued with the spiritual power tucked in his right pocket, he fought off the slave breaker's next planned assault, grabbing his throat and then fighting off the other enslaved people commanded to suppress him. Struggling for more than two hours, Douglas was the victor of that battle and was never whipped again. Douglas was just as fierce in his fight for black equality as he was for the abolition of slavery. So, it's bizarre that Prager U would choose the fiery and outspoken Douglas as a mouthpiece for slavery apologia. If you have a child and you've ever looked online for content to supplement their history lessons, you've probably seen Prager U. They produce videos that look and sound a lot like standard children's public television with bright colors and historical figures depicted in cartoon style. But Prager U is not what it seems. Don't let the U fool you. Prager is not an accredited campus nor even a school. It's a conservative online media company with a distinctively political and often a historical point of view. Its founder, Dennis Prager, 
a conservative radio talk show host, set out to contest what he perceives as an erosion of American values in mainstream children's media, and created an online video series that promotes a range of right-wing culture war talking points as historical truth. From anti-vaccine rhetoric to climate change denial, PragerU has it all. This agenda isn't even particularly well hidden. When asked if PragerU kids' videos are indoctrinating kids, Dennis Prager asked, What is the bad of our indoctrination? The bad is that the videos have gone from simply supplementing the curriculums of conservative homeschoolers to being approved for classroom use by the state of Florida, led by the reactionary conservative governor Ron DeSantis, the governor who has staked his campaign for president firmly in today's culture wars with what he terms woke education as his favorite target, has banned open discussion of racism and racial bias in Florida schools, this past January, Florida officials led by the governor declared that the Advanced Placement African American Studies course, a course created by a commission of leading academics from around the nation and administered by the College Board, was not historically accurate and, quote, significantly lacks educational value. While the AP course has been marked as lacking value, a historical content like the PragerU videos has been approved for classroom use. It is particularly rich to see that the Florida Department of Education has declared openly polemic videos such as Leo and Layla's History Adventures with Frederick Douglass as appropriate. In PragerU Kids' videos on Douglass, the series' protagonists, a young, white, time-traveling brother and sister duo, Leo and Layla, are confused as they watch news reports of contemporary protests against racial violence. Upon hearing that activists are calling to abolish the police, they type the word abolish in their time-traveling smartphones, and it autocorrects to the world, to, pardon me, to the word abolitionist and sends them back to 1852 and a bobble-headed cartoon version of Frederick Douglass. After the kids compliment Douglass on his cool hair, he quickly runs through a sanitized version of American slavery that downplays race and fails to account for the wealth and power accrued by white slaveholders. Prager's Douglas does condemn slavery in the most vague and deracialized terms, saying, I want slavery to end. He explains to the time travelers that, quote, at this time, it is okay for some people to own other people failing to mention that it is white people holding black people in intergenerational bondage. Prager's Douglas defines slave labor as making them, quote, work many hours for no pay and forcing them to do anything anytime. The video fails to mention that enslaved people's labor built much of the infrastructure and agricultural capacity of the nation. When the children express mild distress at the injustice Prager's Douglas has described, he quickly pivots, explaining that, quote, slavery has existed everywhere in the world for thousands of years. Skipping over the horrors of real Douglas personally experienced and his escape from bondage, Prager's Douglas simply said it was very hard and often sad being a slave. Pivoting yet again, he speaks about his quest for literacy. Quote, I taught myself to read and write, and as I always say, knowledge is the pathway from slavery to freedom. This paraphrased quote 
One of the few used in the video is in reference to the real Douglas's account of being punished after his slaveholder's wife, Mrs. Ald, told me taught him the ABCs as a child. In response to discovering the illegal lessons, Mr. Ald said to his wife, If you teach that N-word how to read, there would be no keeping him. It would forever unfit him to be a slave. Douglas reflected that from that moment I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom. For Douglas, education was a weapon for resistance and possible escape. A literate slave could read newspaper accounts, look for opportunities to exploit moments of chaos or turmoil, intercept mail, create passes to freely tra travel, or teach others clandestinely, as Douglas did, spreading seeds of resistance throughout the community. Out of context, it sounds like an enjoinder to do your best in school. Prager's Douglas does casually mention that he was regularly beaten, but fails to share who did the beating and why. Then, perhaps the most profoundly misleading statement in the video, Prager's Douglas says he had had enough and escaped to the north and that he never looked back. In reality, Douglas's entire life's work as an abolitionist was about looking back, fighting for the liberation of those still in bondage. The video isn't done with misleading its viewers. Prager's Douglas goes on to say that the Founding Fathers wanted slavery to end, but their first priority was to get the colonies to unite. Never does this version of Douglas mention that several of the Founding Fathers held, pardon me, held hundreds of men, women, and children in bondage, asked by Layla if he is okay with the Founding Fathers favoring compromise over freedom. Prager's Douglas mimics the stance of those once moderate on the question of slavery, explaining that he is certainly not okay with slavery, but that compromise was necessary to achieve something great, the making of the United States. Pretending that Douglas favored the compromise that forced him and millions of others to be born in bondage is the video's abhorrent low. In real life, Douglas was uncompromising in his urgent determination to end slavery. He gave his whole career over to that cause. In the hands of Prager's storytellers, freedom-fighting Douglas disappears and is replaced with a figure who is sympathetic to the challenges facing slaveholders. This version of Douglas doesn't inform the time travelers about his accomplishments or the things he survived, but rather states that every society had some form of slavery and that we ought to take people in the context of their times. Standard excuses for the peculiar institution of slavery trotted out for decades. This bold reinterpretation of history isn't based on any new research, it's political propaganda. The real story of what America's foremost abolitionist accomplished in his lifetime is a wonderful lesson to share with children. We can't depend on the state of Florida to tell the story of Douglas or other black Americans deserving of remembrance. We probably never could. I, for one, believe that we need to stop waiting for the right thing to happen and start strategizing about how to teach children how to discern lies as they come. Let's prepare our children to be critical thinkers, prepared for the next culture war. Douglas would tell us to be ready for the fight. This author, Blair L.M. Kelly, is the Williamson Distinguished Professor of Southern Studies and the Director of the Center for the Study of the American South at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her latest book is Black Folk, 
the roots of the black working class. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Trendware. Colorado's best full-service IT managed services and purpose-built computer device provider. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.